It is at this time I would like to dismiss our children to Children's Church. I think you guys get to venture what your way back to the jungle. <laughs> As we do so, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We are continuing on in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And as you can guess, with there only being so many chapters in the Gospel of Mark, we are, are approaching a dangerously close place in this account of the life of Jesus. We are getting dangerously close to uh, the crucifixion and to to uh, Jesus's death. But before we get there, something happens. There is one last moment that, that we think, if we had never read this story before, we might think that there is one last hope that Jesus might get out of this mess. Has there ever been a point in your life where you were, where things just seemed to not be going well, and you knew that, that everything that was happening in your life was moving to a, a, an unfortunate event. Maybe, maybe it was you were out on the road and it was snowy or, or rainy, and you were driving your car, and then suddenly you see all the cars in front of you hit their brake lights, and stuff starts spinning and, and swerving, and then you're, and you're just hoping that maybe, just maybe, if I do this one last ditch effort that maybe I will avoid that collision. Or maybe you had drama going on in your friendship or, or uh, in, in your family and you thought, well, maybe just maybe if, if this one good thing happens, if just something good happens, some good news, maybe if I just tell that one really good joke that I know, I will be able to avoid this fight or this confrontation or this argument. Maybe if I can just, maybe there's just that one last ditch hope. Maybe just maybe if I go to the bathroom at the right time, my boss won't see me and I will get out of working late today. And you have that one last ditch hope that maybe you will avoid some unpleasantness. Have you ever, can you think of that time? And you, and you pour so much hope into that one thing. And you're like, Lord, please let this happen. And even though you know it's far-fetched, and even though you know it'll be an absolute miracle if it happens, you still, you are hoping and hoping and hoping it does. And then, let's be honest for ourselves, how often does even that not prevent the unpleasantness? It happens. And often we still go through it, and, and, and that last-ditch effort doesn't happen. And really, maybe what we discover in the end of all that, that, that the unpleasantness that we tried so hard to avoid was exactly what we needed to go through. Because through it, we found opportunity. We found, as we talked in Sunday school this morning, wisdom. And we recognized that maybe even it was just far better for that to be over than for that cloud to continue to hang over our heads. In the first part of the Gospel of Mark chapter 15, we see one last hope that Jesus might avoid the crucifixion. And yet, if we know the story, 
We know that even if there is this one last hope, we know that not only was the crucifixion coming, but that it was necessary and that it was good and it was far better than had it not happened at all. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1 and read through to verse 15. And we're going to look today specifically at the kind of major players involved in this whole scenario. It says this. It says, well, actually, everybody, one more time, please ride for the reading of God's Word. We believe at Tunnel Hill that worship is participatory. So we don't want you just sitting there and you'll fall asleep eventually, I'm sure. But until we get through this, I want to keep you awake. The word of God says this. Early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him. It is as you say. The chief chief priests began to accuse him harshly. And then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. And so Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, this was the Passover, at the feast he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests were, had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas. Them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Please be seated. In our passage today, Pilate finds himself, and really the people um, in, in reality are the ones making the choice, but Pilate and, and, and the crowds find themselves having to make a choice. A choice between Barabbas and Jesus. Now we need to stop for just a moment and we need to start asking ourselves the question, first off, who is Barabbas? Who is this man that, that, that is, is in prison that, that is the alternative to Jesus? Barabbas, what we know from the scripture, was a rebel. He was an insurrectionist. He hated Rome and hated the fact that, that, that Jerusalem, that Israel was an occupied nation, that it belonged to somebody else and not to that they were not independent. 
This is likely that, that, that uh, Barabbas might have even been of the same kind of political ideology of one of the disciples, Simon the Zealot. And these zealots and people like Barabbas were, were those who hated, the, hated Rome and hated anything that represented Rome so much that they were willing to disrupt anything and everything that Rome did and tried to do. They sought out in their life to remove the influence of Rome from all of Israel. Not only did this mean the Romans, like the Roman soldiers and people like Pilate and all of those people who had come from Rome and were citizens of Rome that, that had come to this place to rule over it and really to take advantage of it, but also anybody that was in league with them, any of those rulers, tax collectors, anybody who, was simp who would sympathize with Rome, who was benefiting from Rome, and who was friendly towards Rome. Often, this would mean violent actions by this extreme group that was living among the people. They set out to hurt people. Which leads us to the second thing that our passage says about Barabbas, and that was he was a murderer. Ultimately, this was kind of one of their most common acts of rebellion. Not only would they disobey and, and protest and, and try to just create civil disturbances, but people like Barabbas were, would often try to secretively, in the crowd, in the commotion, kill Romans or those who were friendly to Rome. I heard in, in, in my study, and, and as I've looked at this before, that, that zealots were known to carry a very small dagger that they would keep hidden in the, on their person. And if they got close to somebody that was a Roman sympathizer or maybe a soldier themselves, they would even pull that knife out and try to, to stab them in the crowds and then try to scurry off so that they would have no idea who did it. Likely, from what we read from this passage, uh, Barabbas, in some way, shape, or form, had taken the life of somebody because of either, either their affiliation with Rome or the fact that they were a Roman representative. He hated Rome. And he hated the people connected to Rome. The third thing we know about Barabbas was that he was guilty. This man was not awaiting trial. This man was not um, um, denying his, his guilt. But in fact, Barabbas was a man who had already been condemned. I want you to think about this for a second. Pilate had already declared him guilty. He was a dead man walking. He was in prison, probably waiting to be hung by that third cross at Golgotha. Have you thought about that for just a moment? If there was a third hole up on the, 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 the hill of the skull, if there was a third maybe upwards beam that was waiting for that cross beam to come with a person attached to it, if Barabbas had a window in the prison where he was sitting, he probably looked out onto that hill and he knew that that third hole, that that third spot, that that third gap was meant for him. Because he was a man condemned guilty with absolutely no hope, especially if he was to be put up against some itinerant preacher that the crowds, at least at one point, loved. But what about Jesus? 
Now, if we could just maybe take a moment and suspend all the churchy answers that we know we could rattle off, and, and maybe you can't, but maybe you can, just take a moment and, and pause on all the things that you may or may not know about Jesus, and let's take just a moment and look at what happened in the text. Maybe just look for a moment at what Pilate saw in Jesus. See, Pilate saw Jesus as a man who at least the crowds thought was their king. While Barabbas hated their occupation and was violent because of it, and that made him an enemy of Rome, even if the people, generally speaking, agreed with his cause, Jesus was one who had been thought to be, even accused of being this Messiah, this anointed one, this king from the line of their greatest king, who was maybe showing up to establish that kingdom. Yet, at least in the eyes of Pilate, he sees this one that is supposed to be their long-awaited kingdom, and, and the people don't seem to like him. In fact, they are appealing to the Roman government to deal with the person that should be their king. They have literally handed him over saying, hey, he's claiming to be our king. You guys don't like that. What are you going to do about it? Jesus, for his part, doesn't deny it. Pilate looks him in, in the midst of all this, probably already bruised and, and beaten up, probably clothes already torn, looking like he's been roughed up a little bit. And he says, well, are you? Are you this king of the Jews? Are you what they say that you say you are? And he answers, yes. Jesus is the true king of Israel. He is of the line of David. And yet, if we jump ahead just a little bit in the story, we recognize that he is the one that's going to be murdered. And the rebel, murdering, guilty lawbreaker who hates the current rule will be spared. Not only is Jesus the king of the Jews, but he is also a man of peace. Look at verse 5. It says, but Jesus said nothing. And Pilate was amazed. Again, unlike Barabbas, who viewed violence as a means to accomplish his goals, Jesus became a man of peace. Even though he had been betrayed, falsely accused, con condemned by the very people he had come to save and to give life he had been beaten, and he had been handed over to the Romans. And yet he still, not, he still did not resort to anger. He still did not lower himself to violence. He still did not speak words of hatred to those that were accusing him and that were clearly his enemies. Nor did he even call upon his own divine abilities, angel armies that were at his command in order to deliver himself. Instead, Jesus was silent before his accusers in the court of Pilate. Now, I have no doubt this is the, fulfill, the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53, 7 says that he was, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. But we are also reminded that the battle that Jesus had come to win would not and could not be won with the weapons and the methods of this world. See, Jesus' ultimate goal was not to sack Rome. Jesus' ultimate goal was not to put even the Jews in their place, but his ultimate goal was to reconcile the world to himself and to his Father. And that battle could not be fought with swords and clubs and guns and fire. Lastly, we know that Jesus was innocent. Look down at verse 14. It says, but Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? See, Pilate knew that, that Jesus was not truly guilty of what they were accusing him of. He did not buy into the whole crucifixion thing. He could see the crowds. He could hear the hatred in their voice. He could see how things were getting out of hand. But he had to ask the question, why on earth would we kill this man? When there is the one right next to him that may deserve it so much. What has this man done. They had accused him, if you'll remember, of, of claiming to be the king of the Jews, that he was obviously planning some insurrection or, and trying in some way to topple Rome's influence in the area. And yet, where was his army? Where were his troops? Where were the people that were lining up with, with, with weapons and swords and shields in order to do so? Where were even his supporters? He is looking at a man that is all alone because, as we've read in the weeks prior, his own disciples had scattered. Where was the rhetoric? The banners, the speeches, the promises, the pomp and the circumstance that often comes with someone that is trying to convince a nation to follow him. In Pilate's eyes, he just saw it as envy by the chief priests and the, the scribes and the council. He saw this man as maybe just a better preacher and teacher. Someone more charismatic and maybe a little bit better at doing the job of those that were in leadership. They were jealous. And he thought that they just wanted to make an example of him. Surely they would want him released. Maybe if he just scourged him a little bit, maybe if he just beat him a little bit and just pacified the leadership, just kind of let the leadership think that they had taken him down a few notches, maybe then they would relent in their desire for blood. But this man was not guilty of insurrection. He was not planning a coup. He was not worthy of crucifixion. In fact, in the eyes of Pilate, this man was innocent and should have been released. So what is the point of this little story? Why do you think that all four 
gospel accounts take time to mention this tradition and this decision to crucify Jesus over Barabbas? Why does both Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John think it's important for us to understand that Jesus was condemned, but Barabbas was set free? I'm sure on the surface, one of the most obvious reasons is, is that it actually happened. That everybody remembers that, that everybody remembered that tradition, that, that everybody may have, even if they were not present and they were hearing about this, one, two, five, ten, twenty years down the road may say, but I thought that Pilate would release one person on the, the feast of the Passover. Surely he would have released Jesus. And so all four Gospels was diligent to say, yes, he did, but it wasn't Jesus. But I think it's more than that. In fact, I think that this calls to mind something that that we always need to consider when we are looking at the Gospels, and that is this. We have to remember what Jesus' mission on earth was. See, before the judge, before Pilate, we have two people. Two people before this judge, two people before the jury that was the crowd. The first of these two people was Barabbas. And Barabbas was a rebel, guilty of murder, and already condemned for his crimes. And the other man was Jesus who was the promised Messiah, a man of peace who came to reconcile the world to himself and to his Father, innocent of both his charges and all sin entirely. One of these two people would walk away a free man. And yet amazingly, it was never up to the judge to decide who would go free. In fact, it was always up to the promised Messiah, the true king, the sovereign over heaven and earth. In fact, if we jump to John chapter 19, when we see more of this exchange before Jesus and Pilate, we read this. It says, so Pilate said to Jesus, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And yet Jesus answered him and said, You would have no authority over me at all if it not had been given to you from above. For this reason, the one who who handed me over to you has the greater sin. See, Jesus had already communicated what his mission on this earth would be. And as much as we may look at this opportunity of what is going to happen between Barabbas and between Jesus, what is the outcome going to be? Is this going to be the escape? Jesus knew that his road went to Golgotha. This was perhaps best said just a few chapters ago in Mark chapter 10 when he said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we read in our passage, it would be Jesus who is condemned. And it would be Barabbas who would go home a free man. 
See, Christ's mission was to save a world that was guilty of sin and awaiting condemnation. And he would do that by taking its place. Brothers and sisters, when we look at this story, we are reminded that each and every one of us in this room is Barabbas. We are guilty. We have broken the laws of God. We are in rebellion towards our Creator when we choose our own way. And we are condemned because of our sin. We are Barabbas. And if we're Barabbas, then we need Jesus. The Scripture says it this way. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Much like Barabbas, before Christ comes into our lives, we are trapped in a prison. We call that prison brokenness here in the church as we talk about our three circles and as we share Christ. And that's a prison that we can't get out of. And we know that because of our rebellion and because of our sin and because each and every one of us in this room in some way, shape, or form is a lawbreaker. That we have been condemned and that we too are staring down the road, staring out the window, looking at a cross that is waiting for us. And as we remain in brokenness, as we stay in that prison, we know that we may not be dead yet, but our life is already over. But oh, praise the Lord, Jesus has come into our lives. And unlike us, Jesus is not in rebellion towards God. In fact, Jesus is in perfect harmony with his Father. So much so that Jesus would say that I and the Father are one. Jesus perfectly submitted to the Father, which means that Jesus perfectly lived free from sin, free from condemnation. That he was an innocent man. And Jesus stepped in and he said, I will take his place. I will be the one who takes his punishment today. And because I went to the cross, you can be set free. Brothers and sisters, we say that happens as we look at this picture. Good job, Matthew. We say that that happens through repentance and believing. We understand that in, in Scripture from Romans 10.9. And in Romans 10.9, it says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we'll be saved. And what that basically means is first, we have to believe that everything I just said about Jesus is true. That Jesus was 
the Messiah, that he was the Christ, that he was the Son of God and, and God in the flesh, and that he did come and live a perfect life, obey the commandments perfectly, stayed in perfect fellowship with his Father. And because he did all that, he then went to the cross for the sins of the world. He was crucified, and he died, and he was buried. But as Roman 10, 9 says, we also believe that he rose from the grave. That he is even now alive and seated at the right hand of the Father, and that he has not only paid the full price for sin, but because of that he has defeated sin and death. And all those who will place their hope and trust in Jesus will live forever. You have to believe that. And then it says you have to confess Jesus as Lord. And that's where we get that repent word from. Because what that is saying is, is because you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are going to turn away. That's what that word repent means. You're going to turn away from your sin and your ways and what you want. And you're going to begin to follow Jesus and his ways and what he wants from your life. Now, if we do that, it says that we will be set free from our brokenness. And through the gospel, we will be able to recover and pursue God's design for our life. See, all of us are Barabbas, waiting condemnation. But when we place our hope and trust in Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior, we will be set free. And we will get new life. And we will enjoy eternity with God and the Father. If that is the desire of your heart today, maybe you're looking at this picture, and we've said this a lot recently, but I want you to consider it. If you're looking at that picture and you've never believed, you've heard the gospel, maybe you have kind of, kind of believed this stuff, kind of said, yeah, I'm, I'm good with all that. But I don't know if I've ever really turned away from my own way and my own sin and my own stuff and, and really started following Jesus. I don't know if I've really done this. And maybe you're still in that place of brokenness and you're, and you're just kind of waiting for that, I don't know, that push or that, that final thought that, that says, wait a minute, I need to do this. I want you to look at this picture. What is stopping you from believing on the Lord Jesus Christ today and following him with all your heart? the answer is nothing, then would you give your life to Christ today? Would you, like Barabbas, even though you are condemned, waiting for judgment, would you see your life made new through Christ? If that is your desire today, we would invite you to come up. I'm going to be standing right there as our, as our worship team sings their last song. If you would like to have a conversation about what it means to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, we invite you to do that. If maybe you need to come forward and rededicate your life or, or um, maybe you've made decisions at camp or through vacation Bible school or wherever and you're ready to give your life to Jesus or join in fellowship with his church and get baptized, whatever it may be, we invite you to come forward. 
because we want to talk with you, we want to encourage you, and we want to share Christ with you. And we want to see you have new life in Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God and King, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, I have no idea what happened to Barabbas after this day. But I can't imagine being convinced that you were about to die and then suddenly being made, given new life. But God, you had a message in that, didn't you? A message that that is exactly what Jesus came to do, that he came to deliver the condemned so that they might have new life. God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room today that, that, that maybe for the first time is recognizing that that's them, that they are the Barabbas in the story, that they are a, a, a man or woman that is condemned because of sin. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to Jesus, that they would surrender their life to him, and that they would walk with you. God, I know for many of us in this room, we sometimes get so caught up in the, the things of church and the things of this world and the busyness of life that we forget of what a tremendous gift your son has given us. We forget to worship. We could forget to follow. We forget to love. Lord, I pray that today is a day that we begin anew and walk in the newness of life that Barabbas felt this day. God, however you are speaking to everyone today, Lord, I pray that you would change their heart and give them the courage to act it out. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.